chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 33 through 37. That's Mark 9, 33 through 37. Uh, we're continuing our study of Mark's gospel, obviously, and tonight we will be considering Jesus' teaching on true greatness in the kingdom of God. We're now we're getting to a portion of Mark's gospel where the Lord Jesus begins to teach his disciples uh, quite explicitly about kingdom ethics, we can call it. What does life in the kingdom of God look like? But a question for us to begin. What is greatness? What is greatness? Right, greatness is, is standing out, right? Just to speak humanly, right? In earthly terms, greatness is standing out. <clears throat> it's being exceptional, being one worthy of recognition. That's a great person. Greatness is doing something great with your life, doing something worth remembering, accomplishing something important, right? Greatness is being great in some regard. And everyone, or at least basically everyone, wants to be great in some way or another. Some want to be great in athletics, others in academics, some want to be great in music, others in literature. Some people want to be great in their career, whatever their career may be. Right? They want to go further and beyond what anyone else in their field has done. Uh, some want to be great preachers, remembered for great sermons. Um, some want to be great in enterprise, right? building a business from the ground up. They want to be great. The list could go on and on, but you get the point. Everyone wants to be great at something, but few people actually achieve true greatness. Again, by the world's standards, many people achieve, or very, rather, very few people end up achieving true greatness, and that is the great heartache of many people in the world. But the truth is, most of us will never stand out. I'm sorry to burst your 21st century bubble, right? Most of us are not going to stand out. Most of us, I mean, you want to get depressing, most of us will not be remembered by anyone three generations from now. Hundred years from now, no one's going to remember you. You might be a name on a family tree or a plaque on a wall or a picture, but that's going to probably be about it, right? By the world's standard, very few people will ever achieve greatness. But Christian, what if I told you that you can be great, that you can actually achieve greatness on a real level? You know, the Bible doesn't tell us that it's wrong to be great. The Bible doesn't tell us that it's wrong to desire to do great things or even desire to be the best at something right to my knowledge at least that is not condemned anywhere in scripture feel free to, to check me on that but I have not found it those are actually good goals to want to be great to want to be the best at something but the catch is this greatness according to God is not the same as greatness according to the world it's okay to be great it just depends on how you define it it's good to want to be the best. It just depends on how you define it. The world has a warped sense of greatness that comes with pomp and the best seats and tons of fans and being popular and having respect among your contemporaries and having first place wherever you go and being served by others because of your greatness and because of your achievements. But not so with God. In God's mind which is, by the way, not his opinion. It is the standard, right, of all things. God himself is the standard. In God's mind, greatness is measured by humility and service. God takes our notions of greatness and what it looks like and turns it upside down. We're going to see that this evening. But Christian, do you want to be great? 
Do you want to live a life that matters? Do you want to live a life that will be eternally remembered? Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Would you like to, if I could speak humanly, catch the eye of God and be counted as great by him? If so, then please pay attention to this text. If not, I don't know why you're here. But pay attention to this text, for in it, our Lord is going to teach us what true greatness consists of. And it's radically different from greatness in the world. But with that said, now if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. And they came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come before you now and ask that you would have mercy on us and bless us as we sit under the ministry of your word. Please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to receive the scriptures, and by his mighty power, apply the word to us so that we would be holy as you are holy. Teach us true greatness this evening, we pray. And not just an intellectual teaching, but a heart teaching. Do in us what must be done according to your mercy and covenant faithfulness. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so uh, some context to, to get the ball rolling here. You, you'll remember uh, that in the verses immediately preceding our text this evening, that's verses 30 through 32, the Lord Jesus and his disciples are traveling through the region of Galilee on their way to Jerusalem. And just real quick, in our text, they're in Capernaum, which is along the way. So they've stopped to take a break on their journey through Galilee on the way to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and on this journey, the Lord Jesus has been teaching his disciples over and over that he's going to die. That he, the Son of Man, is going to die for sinners. The Son of Man. Remember, that's a reference to Daniel 7, right? The one with authority, the one who will be worshipped by the world, the one who will have dominion, the great one, he, the Son of Man. The only one who is truly great among them is going to suffer and die in place of sinners to save them. Jesus has been talking over and over again about how he is going to fulfill his mission to save his people by serving them. That is, as he says in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he's come to do, and he's telling them over and over. And now that we come to our text, we see that the disciples have been arguing along the way. They, they've missed the point of Jesus' words entirely. They've not taken them to heart. They don't understand the magnitude of their master's humility that's being told to them. Again, the Son of Man will die. Read Daniel 7 again when you get home. That one, the Son of Man will die. The great humility of Christ. They've missed the point. 
And so now they begin to argue over who's the greatest. You can taste the irony, right? It would be funny if it weren't such a scandalous thing that they're doing. Jesus is talking about his impending humble sacrifice and death, and they're arguing over who's the greatest among the disciples. And that's where we begin our text. We're going to read verses 33 and 34 again. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He asked him, what, are you, what were you talking about? And I, I want to be clear, he knew, right? This is something Jesus does often, is he asks the, disciple, the disciples a question that he already knows the answer to so that he can teach them, right? He, he's, he's setting them up uh, for a lesson here. But he knew. He knew the answer. Now, whether or not he knew through his divine nature communicating secret knowledge to his human nature or whether he simply overheard their arguing on the road because they weren't as quiet as they thought they were. That's up for debate, right? How he knew. But the point is that Jesus already knew what they had been arguing about. And now he intends to teach them something. So he calls them to account and to tell them what they had been arguing over, which just a quick aside here, everything we say we will have to give an account for in front of the Lord Jesus. We'll have to give an account for every idle word. And Jesus is doing that with them now. They have to give an account for what they've been arguing about. But in verse 34, we see the disciples go very silent. Right? They, they don't want to tell Jesus what they had been talking about. Matthew's parallel in Matthew chapter 18 tells us that eventually they do tell Jesus what they were arguing about. But what Mark highlights here is that right off the bat, they were silent. Right? They, were, they were silent. They're embarrassed at themselves here. They realize very quickly that in the presence of Jesus Christ, arguments over greatness are foolishness. Because compared to him, nobody is great. Remember that. Compared to him, no one is great. And that becomes quite apparent to them. But not only that, I, I think they instinctively knew that such proud squabbling over greatness runs totally against the grain of what the Lord Jesus has taught them so far. Right? Jesus had modeled perfect humility for them. And, 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 and now it's very clear that they are not behaving like their master. He's modeled humility. They're being very proud, arguing about greatness. And they're embarrassed, so they won't answer him right off the bat. But this text, again, tells us they had been arguing about greatness. But what does that mean? Who is the greatest? Well, in Matthew's parallel account, we're told that they were arguing over who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? Or who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, that is the kingdom of God. So taking Mark and Matthew together, the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest now, which would foreshadow who would be greatest in the future when Jesus establishes his kingdom. Right? This is a really common Jewish way of thinking. Whoever's great now will be great later. Right? And this would have been very important to the disciples, Right? Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? Since they believed that Jesus was about to establish an earthly geopolitical nation with himself as king. Right? They were wrong. That's not what he had come to do, but that's what they thought. So arguing over who's the greatest now, which would then lead to who's going to be greatest once Christ establishes his kingdom, would have been very, very important to them. And since this kingdom is soon coming in their mind, they need to figure out now who the greatest is. They need to get their pecking order Right? Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? 
But again, I haven't really answered the question yet. What does it mean that they were arguing over who is the greatest? That bothered me, actually. Like, what aspect of greatness were they talking about here? Like, who is the greatest? Right? That could be a bunch of different arguments. And the text doesn't tell us the specifics of the argument in question. It doesn't tell us what facet of greatness they were arguing about. But let me suggest some possibilities to you that all are in the general domain of arguing over greatness. Maybe they were arguing over who had the greatest authority. Right? Who was the highest ranking disciple and could command the others? I imagine Peter probably would have thrown this one out. Right? I'm, I'm the great one. Right? I speak on behalf of everyone. I'm the one who gets to command you guys. Or maybe they were arguing over who was and would be Jesus' right-hand man. Right? Having a place of honor. Who should be the most respected. Or they were arguing over who should receive the most preferential treatment among them. Right? Who should be served by others because he is so great? Maybe they were arguing over who is the most valuable among them. Right? Who had done the most? Who had had the most successes in ministry thus far as a disciple? And that one is the greatest. Or maybe they were arguing over who the best disciple was. Right? Who was the most faithful? Who understood Jesus' teachings the best and was living the most consistently with them? Right? That one's the best. Or... Maybe they were arguing over who Jesus' favorite was, which was John, right? It's the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? I could see John saying, ah, he likes me the best, right? I'm, I'm the greatest, right? That, that is the one who should be esteemed the most among them. Maybe, maybe they were arguing over who should be submitted to in, diff, in difficult matters, right? Who should be deferred to to answer the hard questions? There are many different possibilities that all have the same kind of general ring of truth here. But at the least, I think we can say that they were arguing about who should have the highest position, the greatest authority, who should be the most honored, and who should be treated with the most respect. They were arguing over greatness. Who should be viewed as the greatest among them? And this would have been very important to them in, our, in their culture. right? For them, like us, the ones that are seen as great are the ones who receive the seats of honor. The great ones are the ones who tell others what to do. Right? The great ones are the ones who are served and do not have to serve others. The great ones are the ones who are treated the best. We see that in our own culture. If you're considered great, everyone kind of does things for you. And everyone salutes you in some regard. But on the other hand, the lowly ones... The least ranking ones are the ones who are treated the worst. The low ones are the ones who have to do the serving. The low ones are the ones who are treated as unimportant. And none of them want to be the lowest. None of the disciples want to be the lowest. None of them want to have little status or power or honor or respect. All of them, like us, want to be thought much of treated well, and served by others. And so all of them want to be considered the greatest. And that's why the argument came about. But we're not much different, honestly. Right? Human nature hasn't changed. We all want the highest position we can get. We all want to be considered the greatest. Right? Just think about it for a moment. Would you rather be respected or ignored? Would you rather be respected or ignored? 
Would you rather be considered important or insignificant? Would you rather be thought highly of or not thought of at all? Would you rather be popular or unpopular? Famous or anonymous? Would you rather be served or be a servant? Be honest. We would all choose the first option on all of those questions. Right, we would, right? If we're getting to choose our lives, right? Just check some boxes here. We're all probably going to pick the first of all those things. Everybody wants to be considered the greatest. Nobody wants to be considered lowly, or at least no one wants to be counted as the lowest, right? Maybe you're reasoning with yourself, well, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to be the greatest, but you don't want to be the lowest, right? Just be honest with yourself here, right? You're not fooling the Lord. <laughs> but this is not the way of the Lord Jesus, is it? In all his earthly ministry, Jesus was not thought of as great at all, right? And yet he is the very Son of God and Messiah who had come to save the people of God. In all his ministry, he was constantly serving others in word and deed, in his preaching and in his, his, his serving others through miracles. In all his life, he was constantly serving God as well, right? He was truly the servant of Yahweh that Isaiah had spoken of always doing the will of his father, always serving God. And he was considered an, an esteem, or rather, he was esteemed as great by only a few. Only a few. And even with them, his disciples, they still didn't grasp just who he is and how great he is. They still didn't get it. So even what little recognition he did get still wasn't what he deserved, at least not at first. This isn't the way of Christ, but we, like the disciples, have the same problem. We want to be the greatest. We want to have the earthly respect, earthly honor, earthly privileges. We want to be served rather than to serve. We're no different, but we're sneakier about it than they were. Right? We've been too educated in the faith to come out and say that you want to be served. Right, we're, we're too edgy. We, we know Christianity too well, especially if you were raised in the church, to come out and, and say that you think you're better than others or that you think you deserve preferential treatment, but we do keep pride in our hearts. Again, we're sneakier than they were. They were openly arguing about it. We're a little bit quieter. We don't want to serve because we really do think that we're better than other people. We think we deserve to be respected and esteemed by the world. We really think that we are something. Most of the time, we think we're something. And if you think I'm wrong here, just throw this out there. Uh, the fact that you and I think that we're something a lot of the time is evidenced in how offended we get whenever we don't receive the respect, honor, or status that we think that we deserve. That's why you get upset. It's because you think you're something. I'm preaching to myself here. We won't come out and say it, but most of the time we do think that we're the greatest. Or again, as I try to reason with myself, because we like to rationalize sinfulness, uh, maybe you don't think you're the greatest, but you're greater than many. Right? That's how we rationalize that. Usually, I don't think I'm the greatest, but you do think you're greater than many. It's because you have pride in your heart. And I think that, that thinking that we're the greatest or thinking that we're at least greater than most because we're not being honest with ourselves. We're not being honest with ourselves. In order to elevate yourself above others, you have to lie to yourself about yourself. <laughs> right? In order to think that you deserve to be highly esteemed and served, you have to really play up your successes 
and play up your goodness and really downplay all of your sin and failure and all of your frailty. And we, we only think we're the greatest once we've lied to ourselves enough about all of our sin and unworthiness. That's the only way you get there. You have to lie. It's one of the reasons why pride is evil. You have to lie to yourself to be proud. But as I've said already, again, I hope I've shown you, we have the same problem as the disciples did. We all want high status. We all want to be highly esteemed. We all want to be served by others. In an earthly sense, we all want to be the greatest. Now, real quick, this isn't in my notes, so look out, right? Uh, <laughs> this doesn't mean that there's not legitimate authority, that someone can't have legitimate authority or uh, given by God responsibilities to direct people or give commands, right? We, we do believe in structure. We do believe that there is a hierarchy of, of power. Even within the church, you have elders and deacons, right? And, and those people should be respected according to the word of God. Uh, but what I'm talking about is thinking that you're the greatest in and of yourself, not because of any special authority you have because of a role you occupy, but just you are great. Just by yourself. All right? So we're not denying authority structures. The Bible teaches those things. I'm talking about pride and thinking that you're great. But now we come to verse 35. And here our Lord is going to correct the thinking of the disciples and us. Verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And this is pretty amazing. right? Notice that, first of all, our Lord does not tell the disciples to stop desiring greatness completely, does he? Right? I was kind of shocked by this. You'd think that Jesus would say, well, there's your problem. You all want to be great, and you need to stop wanting to be great. No, that's not what he says the problem is. Instead, Jesus redefines greatness for them. He says, yes, be great. You just don't know what greatness is yet. But you should want to be great. He corrects the worldly understanding of greatness as being served and being of high status and instead reveals that true greatness is found in a humble attitude and serving others. And then in essence, he tells them, be great like that. I'm not going to rebuke you for wanting to be first. Do that. Aim for that. Jesus is telling them that this is how God defines greatness. And this true greatness, uh, and I just realized this the day that I was writing this, uh, Saturday. This greatness is two-part. It's two parts. It's attitude and action. Jesus says if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is an attitude and an action. Now let's break down those two parts and examine them. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. That is, the one who wants to be great must make himself or herself last of all. That's the sense of Jesus' words. He must be last of all. That is, you must make yourself last of all. If you would be great in God's sight, you must humble yourself. And instead of thinking of yourself as the greatest, you must consider yourself the least and the most unworthy to be served. You must consider yourself as low. And listen, please pay attention. I can't stress enough that this is not false humility that the Lord is calling for. 
False humility is hypocrisy and sin. Here's what I mean. Jesus is not telling us to pretend that we're the lowest and the last and act that way on the outside while still inwardly thinking that we're great. That's not what he's calling. He's not calling you to some kind of false outer shell humility. But we do that sometimes, don't we? I'm guilty of that. You pretend to not count yourself, uh, rather you pretend to count yourself as little and low, and you do that so no one can accuse you of being proud, right? Like, oh, you know, I'm really not that good at this, or you know, really, I'm, 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 I'm the worst, and I, right? It's, it's, and it's, it's nonsense. I had to censor myself just then. It's nonsense. <laughs> Some of you are, thank you for laughing. Thank you, I appreciate that. But it's nonsense. Again, you're, you're, it's, it's false humility. You're, you're trying to pretend like you think that you're low, but on the inside, you're, you're still full of pride. You still actually think that you're greater than everyone else, but you've become so sneaky within the people of God, within the body of Christ, that you know you can't just wear your pride on your sleeve, so you fake it. But on the inside, you actually do still think that you're greater than everyone else. That's wickedness. That's sin. That's lying. That's pride. It's wanting people to think you're humble instead of you actually humbling yourself. I think we're all guilty of that. But no, Jesus is not calling us to some kind of false, external-only kind of humility. He's telling us to actually make ourselves low. To actually, in, like from the heart, humble ourselves and count others as worthy of being served. He's telling us to consider others to be of great importance to us. He's telling us to actually believe that we should be serving others because we do not consider ourselves to be great. If we want to be great, we must make ourselves last. Last of all, not counting ourselves as greater than anybody in the world. But how are we supposed to do that? Right? You, ever, you see something like that in the Bible and you just get frustrated. You're like, well, how? How do I do that? This is an attitude change that Jesus is calling for. This is a heart change that he's calling for. You ever tried to change your own heart? You can't. Just real quick, I've tried it. You can't do it. You can't just change your attitude. Right? You can't just change your heart. He's calling us to change how we think about ourselves and how we think about others. So how is that going to be accomplished? The answer is Jesus. Sunday school sounding, I know. But the answer is Jesus himself. The only way that we're going to begin to humble ourselves is to get a good sight of Jesus and not let it go. This is, I'm not kidding. This is the only way for you to actually become humble from the heart. Everything else will be merely external and it will not last. And even if you can make it last on the outside, God knows the difference. We have to get a good sight of Jesus and refuse to let it go. Then our thinking and our hearts will change. And here's what I mean. We must reflect upon and see Jesus with the eye of faith if we're ever to become humble. We must see from the word the almighty son of God choosing to leave heaven. The great one, the only truly great one, God himself leaving his throne in heaven 
and taking a human nature in order to save those who hated him and rebelled against him. We must see that Jesus abased himself when he took on flesh. That he made himself infinitely low. Maybe you think that I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit when I say infinitely low. Whenever I, I say that in, when Jesus took on flesh, it was an infinite lowering. Maybe you think I'm, I'm exaggerating. No. If you think that, you don't know how high God is. This is infinite condescension. For God to become human is unfathomable. If you think about just for a moment the transcendent majesty of God, this will amaze you. And if it doesn't amaze you, it's because you don't know who God is yet. God is dependent upon none. God never tires nor sleeps. God is never hungry. God cannot suffer. God is... is Never weak, he never learns, he doesn't need anything. And yet God, in the second person of the Trinity, took a human nature to himself that is subject to all of the frailties of humanity. Except without sin. That's low. And he did it for us. In order that we could have a perfect human representative to represent us as our covenant head before God. So that we could be counted righteous by faith in Him. So that we could be saved. And this, we, we glance over this a lot because we hear the gospel so much. But this was done for sinners. For offensive human beings. Please take a moment and consider that. Sinners. The lowest of the low when you take a moment to consider the holiness of God. To consider, we, we don't understand how wicked we actually are. We're like fish who don't know that we're wet. But that God would become a human being to save us is amazing. He made himself low for us, Jesus made himself lower than we will ever be able to fathom. Even in glory, I am convinced that our finite minds will never understand the great humility expressed toward us in the incarnation of the Son of God. Infinite humility. And more than that, that this same God would not just become human for us, but would die for us. Humility upon humility, that he would become our sin bearer and suffer the wrath of God on our behalf in order to put away our sins by making atonement for us. Oh, that God would help us to understand some measure of the humility of the Son of God, how we might be changed. It is humility beyond comprehension that the Son of God would die for us. The incarnation is humility enough for us to see, but this staggers the mind and leaves us speechless. And if you don't see how amazing the humility of Jesus is in his incarnation and death for us, then you don't understand how holy and high that God is and how low and wretched that we are. May God help us to get just a, just a glimpse of this. We won't be the same. Do you want your heart to change? 
Do you want to make yourself last and lowest? Then look at Jesus. That's all you have to do. In faith, behold Him. Consider Him. And the Spirit of God will make the Word of God effectual to your soul and change you to be humble and meek like Him. Behold the Son of God and you will be changed into His likeness as the Spirit of God works mightily through the Word of God to change His people. But we must humble ourselves. If we would be first, we must be last of all. We must count ourselves lower than all, just like our Lord humbled Himself and made Himself infinitely low. How in the world could we continue to think so highly of ourselves when our God did not count Himself as too high to be made low? What's wrong with us? I'm preaching to myself here. What's wrong with us that we think that we can't make ourselves low and abase ourselves? When God... Was, was, did it for us. The only great one. But secondly, have, having a humble heart, we must be a servant of all. To be a servant of all means to put the needs of others before ourselves, to serve others. And notice Jesus says, all. A servant of all. That is, there is no one too low for us to serve. Why is that? Because we've humbled ourselves and made ourselves last, remember? If you're last, you can serve anybody. And you actually think that you should. If you actually think you're the last, if, you, if you're truly humble, there's no one that you will refuse to serve as long as you're able to do it. This means that in order to be truly great in the sight of God, we serve regardless of the earthly status of others. Please hear me from the highest to the lowest, from the richest to the poorest, from the strongest to the weakest, from the smartest to the most ignorant, from the most popular to the least popular. We become no respecter of persons when it comes to who we will serve, who we will make time for. Rather, we are willing to serve anyone. And we're not looking for any kind of payback from them. We're counting ourselves as true servants of others. And the service Jesus has in mind here, just a quick word about that, the service Jesus has in mind here is not great according to the world's standards. Right? Like everyone says, I want to do something in the church. No one wants to pick up communion cups. Right? Just we got a couple people here. You get what I'm saying. No one wants to do the low stuff. Right? Everyone wants to preach or play music or something like that. I know I'm just talking about the institutional church here. Right, but everyone says like they'd like to serve and they mean they'd like to do something that they think is pretty cool and pretty great. But no one wants to do the low stuff. But the low stuff is what Jesus is actually talking about here. The word servant here, listen up deacons, diakonos. A lowly servant, just a regular servant, one who does menial and insignificant tasks. One who does boring, regular, ordinary acts of service. This is not a glamorous job kind of serving Jesus calls us to, but it's common, simple, loving service. And it's good to note here that service always entails some kind of sacrifice. Just want to put that before you. Whether it be time, money, labor, whatever it is, to serve always entails sacrifice, at least for human beings. To serve someone means that you're giving a piece of yourself away to them in some kind of way in order to do good for them because it's taking effort and energy from you. 
So this is a sacrificial service given to all who need this kind of, any kind of help as you're able and as you're gifted, you serve them. And all of this service, again, flows from the humble heart of one who truly counts himself or herself as the last, from a heart that has been humbled by Christ himself. That, says Jesus, is greatness. That's what God counts as greatness. That is what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. Humility and service. That's greatness. But then one more thing about this. This makes me ask the question. If you're like me, you always ask questions as you read the Bible. Why is that the measure of greatness in God's kingdom? Why? I accept it. Jesus, you said what you said. But is there a reason behind what you said? I'm willing to accept it because you're the son of God. But is there something deeper? Why is humility and service the measure of greatness? The answer is very simple. Because this is what the king of the kingdom is like. That's why this is what greatness in the kingdom looks like. Because that's what the king is like. Consider this. God's measure of greatness is God himself. Right? Because if there was something outside of God that he measured himself by, that thing's above him. No, so God measures everything by himself. So his measure of greatness is himself. And the visible image of the invisible God is the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who is truly God. So, of course, act like the king. That's what greatness is. Because he's the standard of greatness. And when we imitate Christ in his humble service, we're actually acting like God. And that, to speak humanly, makes God take notice. Why? Because God loves himself. And that's not arrogant. God's the only being in the universe who's worthy of love, so of course he loves himself. If he didn't love himself, it would be immoral. But since God loves himself, when he sees us acting like him as he created us to do, of course he takes notice of that and calls that greatness. Greatness in the kingdom is measured by how much we reflect the king. So we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus says greatness is humble service because that's him. But back to our text. The Lord Jesus, after telling what true greatness looks like, then goes on to give an object lesson to drive it all home and tie it together. Verses 36 and 37. And he took a child and put him in, his, or put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus takes a child, a toddler, think Piper or Dean. He takes a toddler who is in the house with them. Fun fact, this is probably Peter's house in Capernaum, so this might be one of Peter's children. He was married. Kind of wild to think about. Wouldn't that be cool to find yourself in the Gospel of Mark as you get older? It's probably one of Peter's children, but he takes this child, this little boy, and, and puts him in the midst of the disciples and picks him up and embraces him and tells them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Now that doesn't strike us, right? We think all, right? But that, that's not the point here, right? This isn't like just mere sentimentality. Jesus doesn't do that. There's a purpose behind this. This doesn't strike us in the 21st century the way that it would have struck the disciples. Jesus is making a point. 
Culturally speaking, that little child, that toddler, would have been counted as having very little value and no status or importance at all. Culturally. Now, don't get me wrong. Parents back then loved their children just like we love our children now. But socially speaking, little children were worthless. Right? And, and, and you can see what I mean, I think. And I'm getting ready to say some things that are going to sound harsh. My daughter's in the back, so I'm not saying anything that I wouldn't say to her face if she could understand. Listen up, Pete. A little child can't add anything to your life. Like, tangibly speaking, they can add some sentimental things to your life, but they can't add anything to your life. Not really. They have no clout at all. They have no skills worth noting. They can't help you do anything. Not until they get older. Instead, you must constantly be serving them. And they can't offer you anything in return, can they? You're starting to see now the point that Jesus is making. Jesus takes the lowest, a little child, and embraces him as an object lesson for the twelve. He's saying, we are to embrace the lowest, making ourselves last, and being a servant of all. To the one who can't do anything for you because he has no power. To the one who can't do anything for you because he has no respect culturally. The one who can't, who can't do anything for you. You serve that one. But what's really interesting is this, this child doesn't represent every lowly human being on earth. It doesn't. Right? Though we are to love and serve our neighbor, neighbor being defined by Jesus as anyone that we come into contact with throughout our lives, though we are to love our neighbor, Jesus does not mean for this child to be seen as a symbol for any lowly person. No, this, this child actually represents a lowly believer. Here's where, here's where I see that. Jesus says whoever receives one such child, right, one like this, which means that the toddler in his arms is symbolic. He represents a group of people. And then Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, quick question for you. What group of people does Jesus identify with so closely that if you do something to them, it's as if you've done it to him? Acts chapter 9, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus says to Saul, Jesus was in heaven. Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. But Jesus says, you're persecuting me, Saul. Jesus says in Matthew 24, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done to me. Mark 3, Jesus says, who are my brother and sister and mother? The one who does the will of God. These are Christians that Jesus is identifying with. This child represents a lowly Christian, a Christian with no status and nothing to offer. One who cannot pay you back or help you in return, but a believer nonetheless. Jesus says, receive that one. That is, welcome him. Treat such a one as significant. Serve that one. Give your time to that one. Don't despise him, but receive him. Help him. Love him. So Jesus is telling us that above all, though we are certainly to serve unbelievers as well, we must especially serve our brothers and sisters. Families first. Even in the kingdom of God, family is first. 
we must especially count ourselves as lowest among the brethren. And yes, I son ironically used the word brethren. It's in my notes. We must especially make ourselves servants to one another in the church. We must especially look for ways to do good for one another. And what a motivation our Lord gives us here. When we receive one another, when we serve and love and care for and cherish one another, we're doing it to Him and to the Father. What a motivation for us to serve each other. Like, just keep it real for a minute, right? We love our Lord more than we love each other sometimes. And I get it. We're annoying. Right? I talk to some of you and you say, will you please pray for me? I'm having a hard time really caring about the people I go to church with because they get on my nerves. And I'm saying, amen, I pastor them. <laughs> we often love Jesus more than we love his people sometimes because we're frustrating, but he's perfect. He's never done us wrong, but our fellow church members do us wrong sometimes. But really, if we love our Lord, then we will receive one another, even the lowest ones, even the unpopular ones, even the weird ones, even the ones who annoy us, and even, even the ones who will never be able to help us in return. If we love our Lord, we will serve him. And to serve one another, says Jesus, is to serve him. What a motivation for us to be last and a servant of all. As he has done for us, so we do for one another. We make ourselves low and serve. That, my dear brothers and sisters, is true greatness, as our God and King defines it. All the greatness of the world will fade away, but this greatness is everlasting and will echo through eternity. But before we go into application, don't worry, we're not that much further away from being done. I want us to consider this question, please. Who is the greatest? Who actually is the greatest? Jesus says that the one who serves his people, the one who is a servant of all of his people, is the greatest. Who fits that bill? It's Jesus. It's Jesus only. He's the greatest. He's the one who served all. He's the one who served all of his people. He's the one who made himself last by leaving heaven, taking on flesh, and redeeming us by his sacrifice and death upon a cross in our place. Philippians 2 said, He took the form of a servant, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God the Father recognizes Jesus as the greatest because Jesus is the pinnacle of humble service for the people of God because he humbled himself to death in order to save us. Jesus is the greatest. Surely, Oh, please, surely getting a sight of Christ will kill our pride. Surely beholding Christ taking on flesh and being crucified for us will cause us, as the hymnist said, to pour contempt upon all our pride and count ourselves as last and become a servant like our Savior. We're not greater than our Master. 
Comparing ourselves to him and seeing his great humility and love in spite of our worthlessness surely shows us that we are nothing and it is no loss to us to humbly serve one another. Jesus is the greatest and we are not greater than him. So we must do as he did. So brothers and sisters, do you want to be great? Because you can. It's simple. Serve one another. I'm going to leave it to the Spirit of God to show you how you can be doing that for one another specifically. But serve one another. Take the initiative. Be mindful of one another. Look for the opportunity to serve however God's gifted you. Look for ways to do kindnesses for one another. Count yourself as last and be a servant. And look to Christ who served you. There's the motivation for it all. Consider Jesus who served you who infinitely humbled himself for your sake, who sacrificed himself for you, who died to forgive your pride and your self-serving. Live in that and rejoice in that. Have peace through him, your serving Savior. And then from there, understanding the blessedness of being served by your Lord, let your love for one another flow. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, please help us. Help us to cultivate a servant's heart. Help us to actually count ourselves as low. Jesus, what I'm asking is that by your spirit, you would help us to see you rightly in the word. Higher than all, you made yourself a servant of all. Help us to see, God. Help us to see. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.